Do the trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Our bestseller is all they're cracked up to be. Here at Terrible Book Club, we explore whether you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. You ever passed a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Welcome to episode 175 of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Paris and this is Chris. Hello. This time we read The Golden Basement by David Norman Lewis, self-published in March of this year, 2023. This was recommended by longtime listener, first time emailer, I guess, Max, who sent us a wonderful email recommending that we read this. Max's email read... Hey, Chris and Paris, Terrible Book Club prevented me from smashing my head against the wall many times while working from home these last few years. After years of listening, I finally found a novel which I think would be great Terrible Book Club material, The Golden Basement by David Norman Lewis. A few months ago, you might have noticed a poem titled Reward If Found stapled up all over Cambridge. There were a couple of Reddit threads about it. On going back to my hometown of Seattle, Washington, I found out the poem is from a local self-published book, and it is absolutely psycho. The author has been stapling the same poem everywhere. The novel is a kid's book about underground monsters controlling people's thoughts during the 1990 Goodwill Games. It has a heavy metal character in it, which made me think of you too. Plus, it's illustrated. There's a YouTube video where the author is trying to sell it with donuts. You have to check it out. I so want to hear your takes on it. I emailed the author and he told me the baker is a friend of his. They once worked together on trying to make a new religion for Seattle, but nobody showed up. <laughs> I also asked the author <laughs> about the time he bombed out on Ellen DeGeneres' dating show. The author bio in the back of the book is eye-opening. <laughs> well, thank you, Max. Uh, really appreciate your longtime devotion to the show and uh, very much appreciate you writing in about this book. We had Glad we could save your head from being smashed. Yeah, yeah. Please, please don't smash your head in. Um, I, I will say up front, we, uh, we might have some disagreements about this, but <laughs> yeah. we're, we're glad you wrote in about the book. All right. If this is your first time listening to this show, what we do here at the Terrible Book Club is read books that we assume will be bad based on their cover, title, summary, or some combination of the three. Sometimes, like today, we read books that our patrons, listeners, or friends recommend. So... Typically, we're doing the opposite of what most people do when they are in a bookstore or while they're browsing the internet looking for something to read. Um, and usually this experiment results in a hilariously disappointing read, but once in a while, we end up liking or even loving the book. Can we let the cat out of the bag here right now, Paris? Do we, do we want to? Well, here's the thing. For things that are good, we might be concerned about spoiling things for people, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's appropriate to let you guys know now we really liked this book. Yeah, this book was pretty great. Uh, so this is this is not going to be a hate fest today. We did not hate this book. We liked it. We really liked it. So if the if the back of the book summary pulls you in, or at least what Max described pulls you in, we recommend that you go out and try this one out before we start summarizing it and dissecting it. 
Well, yeah, we'll give you another warning uh, ahead of that happening. Although, honestly, I don't know that the knowing the plot points in the book really would ruin reading it, actually. But I agree. Anyway, uh, before we uh, continue today's show, we'll include our usual barnyard language, plus discussion or mention of emotional abuse, enslavement, murder, parental neglect and abuse, and suicide. I think that was everything, right? Yeah, the darkness comes from that realm of things. Yeah. All right. Um, do you want to read this, the back of the book summary, and then I will read, I can do the summary you wrote? Yes, I'll oh. do the back of the book and the characters. All right, great. Back of the book says, There is something strange about the tall masked men pushing souvenir carts at the 1990 Seattle Goodwill Games. Up on the surface, it is a nice summer day, but beneath the city, it is hot, dark, and scary in the underground tunnels. Former ride engineer Jesse July wouldn't be down there at all if he wasn't looking for the ultimate ride, the spaceship, to finally get him off the planet. Jesse's son Evan doesn't share his father's outer space obsession, and to Jesse's great frustration, his son is the only one who knows how to work most of the broken alien machinery down in the caves. If Evan is successful, it is a great summer to enjoy. The Cold War is winding down, and the Human Genome Project is just starting. Plus, Seattle is hosting the Goodwill Games, the knockoff Olympics that the provincial city hopes will put it on the map. Unfortunately, both above and below ground, there are plenty of humans and non-humans who don't share the Goodwill Games' goal of world peace. Okay, so we've got a handful of characters here to focus on. Um, we have Evan July, son of Jesse July, cave dweller and alien tech whisperer, Jesse July, Vietnam vet slash former carny slash real estate mogul slash absolutely terrible human being. Yeah, worst dad ever. There's the award. <laughs> we have Sammy July, daughter of Jesse July and caretaker of Evan. Gideon Weed, a walking homunculus of pathetic. Also a heavy metal fan. <laughs> yes. Lennon Celeste, runaway vagabond Alaskan teens. The recycler, eco-cult leader, and entertainer. And the lead gloves, immortal alien astronauts enslaved by Jesse July. This all takes place in 1990s Seattle. Yep. Uh, there is a very small end of the book that takes place in 1999. Uh, but we're still in the 90s in this yeah. entire thing. So if you, if you too are uh, you're out there collecting big pants and buying Pokemon Y2K cards. auctions and Pokemon cards, then this, this book's for you. Um, all right. Chris very kindly wrote our, our our summary today. So this is where we get into the more detail in the book and we tell you our experience, all of the major plot points, kind of, you know, rising action, falling action, big, big uh, important stuff in the story. So if, um, if this sounds interesting to you at all you might want to just uh come back in five minutes <laughs> fast forward a little bit if you don't want to hear all this stuff or just go get the book and read it first yeah also that you know this is this is a, a medium that can be paused and resumed at any time so you can also do that <laughs> a core function actually yeah. I believe, <laughs> yeah that you can but, shut us up at any moment we you yeah. know you're not trapped in here down in the, the podcast caves forced <laughs> to work the alien podcast technology <laughs> um but seriously buy this book it was how much was it on kindle it was like 10 bucks or something yeah yeah i think it was about ten dollars it, it wasn't much uh read the book come back 
resume resume playback of this episode after you've read the book in a few days. All right. Here's our summary of the events of the book. Evan July lives in a huge cave system underneath Seattle with his father, Jesse July, and his sister, Sammy, as well as a bunch of alien creatures known as lead gloves. The lead gloves are under Jesse's control since he found a device that, when he presses a button on it, sends a signal to the collars on the lead gloves, which grants them presumably orgasmic ecstasy. Jesse, a former Vietnam vet, Carney, turned real estate mogul, found the cave system in a golden vault door and dreams of finding the spaceship he assumes is locked behind it in order to leave Earth, which he finds repugnant, once and for all. Evan has never seen the surface, since Jesse has kept him away from its corrupting influence ever since he was born. Jesse has other family members that he has bred in an effort to find a child who could intuit the alien technology buried underground. These family members are left to decay in other rooms in the cave system with constant drugs, food, and television until they give out and are dumped in a hole. Sammy, the only other July family member not subsumed in hedonistic rot, takes care of and dotes on Evan while attempting to keep her father's favor. Evan yearns for a normal surface life, which he only sees through the lens of surface media and entertainment. He is particularly enamored with The Recycler, a militant eco-hero who publishes books about conservationism. When Sammy kidnaps a bunch of children so Evan can have a normal birthday party, the kidnapped children reasonably try to violently force Evan to show them the way out. They are destroyed by lead gloves for daring to attack Evan. Sammy and Evan seem nonplussed by this. Evan eventually uses his only leverage, the fact that he knows how to use lead glove technology, to make Jesse let him out onto the surface to see the 1990 Goodwill Games for his birthday. The Games are a lower-rent version of the Olympics hosted in Seattle to foster goodwill between America and the Soviet Union. Once out, Evan makes his escape from the family and is immediately hit by a car driven by Len and Celeste, two runaway Alaskan teens. Celeste takes pity on Evan and tries to nurse him back to health. However, Jesse quickly puts up signs around Seattle promising a 60k reward for the return of Evan. Len is tempted by this to fund his rockstar dreams, but Evan actually has an enormous wad of cash on him right then and hires the pair to help him track down his mom, who he's never met. Their first lead is the house of Gideon Weed, the writer of an anti-capitalist zine that Evan is a fan of, who seems to know more about Evan's father than any other person in Seattle. When they head to his house, they quickly find that the Recycler has already taken Gideon away, since in previous chapters, the Recycler had encountered Sammy, realized she was part of the July family who was looking for Evan, and also knew that Gideon was somehow in the know about Jesse. Evan and co. get to the Recycler's rundown motel lair, find that he's running some kind of cult built around self-torture in the name of apologizing for the pain humanity causes the Earth, and also a bit of alien technology that has given the Recycler visions. Evan knows the visions are just a side effect of not knowing how to work the tech, so he quickly inputs a sequence on the control panel for it, which then shows an alien cameraman opening the golden basement door underneath Seattle to reveal thousands of aliens in stasis in alien jail. Evan copies the vault code sequence shown in the video. The recycler decides that since Evan showed him the conclusion of the visions, his life and work are over, and he decides to burn his compound and everyone in it. Before he can do that, Jesse shows up to take Evan back. Evan, Len, and Celeste escape in a car, only to be cut off by Jesse and Sammy at the other end. Before Jesse can take Evan back to the caves, the police show up to arrest him for the mayhem he has been causing around Seattle. Nine years later, Evan has been living as a paranoid agoraphobe, having made a fortune on remote cybersecurity work. He fears his father and the lead gloves will come from the caves to kidnap him again. But Sammy, now an alcoholic PR rep for a wine company, shows up and lets Evan know their father died when he opened the golden basement and was torn apart by the alien creatures within. 
Evan goes back to the caves to find Gideon teaching the alien hordes about the evils of capitalism. Gideon happened to know the address of Evan's mom, which he gives Evan. Sammy drags him to the WTO protests, where they're both spiraling in different ways. Evan and Celeste drive to find his mother, uh, and they find her comatose since before he was born, which has some horrifying implications. Evan is dejected and just wants to go on a road trip. The end. (laughs) Okay, so if that sounded pretty insane to you, that's reasonable. I mean, the one thing about this book, Paris, before we get into anything else, is that I tried to talk about it with my partner for a a bit to kind of tell her, like, hey, we found a good one to read here. And the more I tried to describe what was going on, the more she was like, you like that? Wait, where's the draw there? The yeah, the the surface of this uh, whole thing does seem pretty fucking wacky and terrible. Yeah, uh, including the ad campaign. Yeah, so as you might remember from Max's email, um, the ad for the book it's like a crossover between the the author and his book, and then this bakery. And I mean, I guess it's you know it's not the worst idea, right? Like people people like baked stuff. We like bread and cookies and shit. Like sure, promote your thing with a bakery, but but the video was just very odd. I mean, we'll put a link to it in the in the notes for the episode so you two can uh can experience it after we saw the video we were like oh yeah this book's gonna be fucking terrible because it just seemed it had this sort of social awkwardness about it that just made it seem like the people involved were very out of touch but maybe that was the point i don't know in any I case i believe that was purposeful i believe this was like a tim and eric thing you know where you're like mm. you're so like cringed out by it that you're like i i can't help but keep looking at this yeah i mean unfortunately it had the opposite effect where it made me want to turn away and think oh this is definitely going to be bad um and secondly the other point we wanted to address before we got into it is when max wrote in he said this was a kid's book and chris and i were very confused by that because after reading this i cannot imagine giving this to like like an eight or nine year old could not enjoy this i don't understand he meant teens i mean but like yeah and and so i so you know realizing these two things didn't quite match up i did just a, a quick googling and saw someone else had emailed the author and they had posted the author's response on reddit about the book uh, you know, because this author had this camp, this ad campaign, as Max described, with like the a poem from the book posted up around towns um, as a form of advertisement, which I don't know. I thought was a cool idea. I don't I don't think it's a bad yeah, idea. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot fine. of non-standard advertising methods being employed yeah. here, right? Yeah, which is fine. I thought the poem thing was cool. Um, although, I mean, I guess it's a little it's a little uh, like disjointed because it's just the poem and then. <laughs> an AOL email address. It's like golden basement <laughs> or gold basement AOL.com. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, You're but like for a very I'm... particular market of people that would a <laughs> stop and read a poem on a lamppost B see an AOL email at the bottom and then C want to know more. <laughs> yeah. And be willing to email an AOL email in the year 2023. Uh, but some, some people did and they lived. So that that's yeah. good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they all seem to be okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> as far as I know, Max is still here. I yeah. think so. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that marketing schemes aside, the uh, 
response from the author that this person got from them did say the author themselves said this is a YA book. And I got to tell you, man, this is not a fucking YA book. Like the there's no way that because I, I, I think YA and I think like 10 to 13 years old. Am I wrong about that? I think YA is more like 12 to 18. Oh, okay. So I could see older teens, like 15 or 16 plus, being able to get something out of this. But really, this book feels like it's for adults who grew up in the 90s. Like, I don't I don't see how a kid who's 15 or... Tw- I mean, honestly, there's some there's some pretty dark stuff in this book that I don't know that younger kids would get. Um, well... I mean, imagine you're like a teen that has gone through a severely broken home situation and could perhaps relate to Evan in some ways. Maybe not as extreme as his situation is, but yeah, you know, I think that wanting to leave your family aspect of it is a is a key part of a lot of teenagers' upbringings. No, no, you're right. I guess I mean all of the kind of sociocultural stuff that's very witty and hinted at throughout the text. There's this book is so steeped in '90s pop culture history i mean i i would be surprised if somebody who didn't grow up in that time would find any reference points or meaningful reference um in it maybe i mean because like i guess you know the 90s and y2k is popular now so maybe maybe there is an appeal there um but i it is weird because it, it's like nostalgia that you did that they didn't experience so i don't i don't know if that's even nostalgia cuz i think you have to experience it for for it to be nostalgia but um yeah well i mean i do agree that the uh, even the author's billing of this as ya seems yeah, a little I don't... mystifying to me since yeah maybe i'm pigeonholing ya media as much more surface level no, you're not pigeonholing it. It is that. It is usually <laughs> terrible. I mean, like, like what we I, see build as YA has like, you know, again, very shallow sort of yes. looks at, you know, human motivation. And the, this book is really rich with digging deep into nuance and things like that. Also, when I think YA fiction, it's been just covered in vampires and dystopias and things, you know, like weird fantasy shit for years and years and years. And again, maybe I'm pigeonholing YA media for that. But this is... This takes place in mostly 90 Seattle. I mean, there is the wild underground hollow earth thing happening there. So I suppose that kind of does put it in there. Well, it's in, not it's not hollow. The earth isn't hollow in this. That's not. They call it like they, they Sammy and Jesse keep calling it hollow earth. There's just tunnels underneath the earth with a with a horrible alien space jail. But but then there's, there's the core. train, like the elevator at the end that can take you to different points in the world, like in the cave system. Yeah, sure, but we're still in the we're still in the Earth's crust, Chris. We're not in the the mantle I, okay. or the core. Like, I think you know, what's being I, implied <laughs> here is that there's like a cave system around within the, the like core. The yes. So there's like a hollow, right. like an air layer, and like an insulating air layer between uh-huh. the core yes. and the mantle and the crust yeah. that is filled with a cream filling of horrible alien monsters. Yes, and and a you know. Global taxi service via via Donkey Kong carts. Um, that's yeah. actually what it is at the end. <laughs> anyway, sorry, 
point being uh we are a little confused by that i think i think you know max pointing out that it was a kid's book and then us seeing that the author is saying it's a ya book yeah i wouldn't agree with either of those i feel like i think yeah like i said i think older kids could appreciate this but then i wonder how much all the deep 90s history and culture and social stuff and media would matter to them like would that even be interesting i I don't know i also don't know yeah Anyway, I think, you know, I think if you're an older teen, maybe 15 plus, or I don't know, maybe some a bright 14-year-old, but I feel like kids younger than that, I don't know that this would do it, but in any case, this feels more like a regular book for adult yeah. humans. <laughs> like, I don't think, I don't think it, calling it YA, I think actually does it a disservice. I agree. Um. Anyway, great. Now we're going to start talking about things that were good. All right, Chris, what do you got? Quite, I mean, it's quite a lengthy section this episode. We're going to actually be spending most of our time here. Yeah, that is, never happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> here we are. Okay, I mean, we get out the noisemakers. Yeah. As we've already mentioned, we generally really liked this book. So, of course, we thought the writing was pretty fantastic. It's not flowery or anything, you know, some people confuse fantastic with flowery or purple. It's not that at all. It's concise and understated, but sharp and illuminating at the same time. We have wonderful bits of characterization of all the characters in here. It's it's really well done, I have to say. Some of my favorite stuff is actually related to Jesse July specifically and all his terribleness. There's some lines in here that in a couple or maybe one sentence or less can just get you right down to the core of who Jesse is and how he thinks without having to give you too much background lore on him. So a good example is this passage. In an addendum to the will, Jesse added that he would potentially be okay with having his head grafted if anybody could think of a way to do it without any danger of him ever feeling another man's testicles. Yep, that's kind of terrible that that man is. (laughs) We've packed into that one sentence his insane, you know, thoughts about, like, body grafting and alien technology and how willing he is to do something as crazy as that. With his, like, hyper-toxic masculinity ideas of, like, what a real man is and and all that kind of stuff. Like, he doesn't even, even if he got a new, brand new body, it's still another man's body and therefore it's another ba- man's balls that I have to feel with another man's nerves or brain. And that is, and that is like, the particular flavor of 1990s homophobia that is just so perfectly replicated. <laughs> Right? In like that, in in literally a sentence, you guys probably have a great idea of who Jesse is already. Yeah. Um and I mean in addition to the writing being so well done, this was almost perfectly edited. There was no chaff in this to cut. There was no we weren't like grasping for meaning after reading a sentence and like wondering what syntax had been malformed into no this the sentences were great the paragraphs there were thousands were of malformed sentences buried under the earth <laughs> yeah exactly seeking uh, to reach out and infect our minds that's no. what you and i do paris we're in the the, the terrible basements we are god we are in that basement um yeah and the chapters were great. Like some of them were very long. Some were short uh, and they were, pay- and, you know, and the pacing was purposeful. 
pacing was great. Uh, this book was 347 pages, um, but it didn't feel that long. It was a quick read. Uh, yeah, I I mean, I think the person to thank for the editing is uh, Sophia Rose Senturk. She was create, uh, created, credited as the editor. She also did the cover as well and all the proofreading. So masterfully done. People Great who job. just self-published and did all this themselves. Like That's the nutty I, part about this, yeah. right? Is that we've seen so many other self-published authors and we're always kind of like, you know, I understand that it can be hard to get a good editor. I mean, hopefully that editor was perhaps recompensed in some way or perhaps it was a passion project for them because maybe the author was a friend of theirs or something like that. But it's well, it's really well done. You can get some friends that might help you. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess you just got to pick the right friends, right? You yeah, know, you right. can't just you can't just like pick your aunt who taught kindergarten, you know. Um, so anyway, Sophia Rose Centurk, fantastic job. Um, yeah, the just in terms of technical aspects, like I said, you know, the the layout, editing, great. Um, the cover, the cover and the lettering and stuff definitely evoke like nineteen ninety four. I don't know, like word art. <laughs> and, yeah, it looks like maybe it's an ad for an old Mac. Yeah the the um the cover is a uh like like clay model. It looks like stop motion animation, which is really popular. That I mean, I I love me a stop motion animation. It's got like the Earth on it. It's it's a uh, mentioned in the book that Evan in his uh, cave room has like a paper mache. They're like making a paper mache, um, pinata Earth or whatever for his birthday and that's the cover and it's got like chocolate on it and you know whatever it's uh it's definitely weird i wouldn't i would look at it and be like i don't know if that's for me but it fits the book it's a cool idea again yeah just just everything's so well done for a completely self-published and independent work it's very impressive guys you can do this (laughs) i don't know chris should we be encouraging people after all the years on the show i don't know um i like to anyway, try to make things positive yeah i know uh but yeah so from just from even from a technical perspective uh in terms of all of that stuff great high marks wonderful no no edits <laughs> <laughs> when does that ever happen when are we like no edits um it's possible. That I think this is a great episode for us to be able to point to, to be like, look, we're not always jerks about everything. Yeah, we're not. We it's don't possible for us to like things. Um, yeah, I guess we could just get back to reading some other examples of the great writing in this and the wonderful characterizations. Uh, I can do the next one. <laughs> since, Chris, since last time you got shafted with reading some pretty horrible stuff, I'll read this one. Good. Good. The bored lack of empathy in the lead glove's face was like an orangutan they'd seen at the zoo who would eat Cheerios or have sex with his own twin sister with equal disinterest. What a horrifying line. What a <laughs> horrifying so good. line. Right? So, like, it's putting two biological drives, like, things that motivate a lot of animals and creatures here, Um Next to each other, one that is a basic thing, one that is, you know, something pretty awful to have to think about. But, you know, some animals, you know, they don't really have the same layer of ethics, I guess, that humanity would here. Right. Um, and just like putting that onto the alien creature there just, again, helps you get an idea of what we are dealing with here. 
in a really quick way, it demonstrates the very alien difference between humans and the lead gloves, right? Who are an alien species and also alien species who have been kind of enslaved and tortured for a really long time. Uh, I think that's another layer there, but it's, yeah, just really, really well done. You want to take the next one or you want me to get it? I'll do it. All right. So this is Evan sort of talking about Gideon Weed's zine that he is an avid collector of. Evan knew the writing was terrible, even compared to the other images. Gideon couldn't stay focused on one thought for more than two sentences. He constantly quoted Karl Marx and Abby Hoffman, whether or not it had anything to do with what he was talking about, and commas randomly grazed among the pages like lost cows. Oh, we know, we know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Evan knew it was bad. Yet to him, Gideon's writing shined like the cheap diamond full of little black fat little black flecks that Sammy inherited from her biological mother. Gideon's writing shined because, unlike all the other local media that praised Evan's father, Jesse July, as the Wizard of Westlake, for his urban renewal projects, Gideon was smart enough to be suspicious. So we're getting a good description of why Gideon's zines are kind of not great. They are not great, but we're also understanding that Evan is perhaps a little bit more intelligent or well-read than your average 10-year-old um, and like a deep understanding of why he is drawn to Gideon's terrible writing. Yeah, because even though even though Gideon's kind of an idiot and, you know, isn't maybe stringing together thoughts in the most coherent way, he's at least, he, he still has uh, a drive in him to question things that don't seem right and is trying to puzzle it out. Even if he hasn't puzzled it out yet, he's trying. <laughs> and Evan recognizes yeah. that as and that at least something. Evan. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, I mean, the, all these examples just highlight that almost every, I would say most characters here, and we can like talk about the gradient a little bit, mm-hmm. but from Evan to Gideon to Jesse, even Lennon, Celeste, and Sammy, are all nuanced in a really lovely way. So Sammy, especially when I first started reading her bits, she rides this line of a sister who is very caring and wants to take care of her brother, but she's so flawed that her level of wanting to care scares you a little bit because you're like, I don't know if you understand what that really is or what I need or what someone under her care would need. So she feels kind of scary in that way, but you also want to give her the credit for wanting to take care of Evan in the horrible situation that he's in, even though she's not exactly letting him out either. Well, Jesse, meanwhile. Sorry, I was going to say, she's only a year older than Jesse. Um, she's 11. So they're very close in age. And so it's not like she's an adult or anything. Sure, you know? She's not very equipped either, but she right. gets more surface access and perhaps is, you know, maybe has a little bit more context for things than Evan would have, even if he's younger. I mean, this is all due to Jesse, right? And Jesse himself, I actually found him to be the most interesting to read character because he, we described him as absolutely terrible. He keeps his son trapped underground and he has like many, many family members. Sammy is also trapped underground. She's, She's not. She goes to the surface sometimes. 
Uh, yeah, but I think, but only supervised by Jesse, and only because Jesse knows that basically he she, he knows that she's not going to run away. But she does. It's not like she has free reign either. I guess is the point I'm making. Yeah, true. I mean, you know, Jesse does terrible, terrible things to his family members. And, like, we haven't even really dipped our toes into the, you know, hedonism rot rooms that we mentioned before. You know, his his personal eugenics experiment, you know. Yeah, great. That, that part that's happening there. But he's still kind of worldly, right? Like, because of his experiences as a Vietnam vet. And, you know, he he was a carny and he also, like, has a lot of business deals happening. So he's intelligent, you could say. And his brain is always actively making these connections from all his experiences. Kind of like that neuron meat cute thing that I'm always Mm -hmm. talking about. What I like to enjoy feeling when I read a book. But, like, they are so smeared in his hatred for his fellow humans that he's always just making these like judgments of how repugnant everyone else is. And that's really what's driving him to do everything. So all of the, the like the intelligence that he might have is spent on these horrific eugenics programs and subjecting his family to torture as well as an entire alien species just for him to get away. Yeah. Um, and like, that's a, it's it's a very interesting thing to read. Jesse July is like the I don't know, just hubris in in like gold Texas fucking coding. Like I don't know. Yeah. He's, he's from <laughs> he's got Texas. That barbecue sauce on him. That he's bold from... Texas BBQ sauce of hubris. Hubris sauce. Yeah, it's it's the selfishness, the callousness towards his own family uh I mean, yeah, he literally throws family members out when they are no longer useful to him. They go in the the hedonistic rot room. I forget. What is it called? The TV room or something like that? Yeah. I forget. Um, He literally calls Evan a tool later. He's like, when he's going to pick him up from the recycler's motel, he's like, I heard you have a tool of mine. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, Jesse's really good. Even Lennon Celeste, who, you know, we don't spend a a ton of time with in comparison to some other characters, but they've got some nuance to them too. Celeste is pretty callous in a lot of ways, but she wants to protect Evan as well, similarly to Sammy does. Um, She's like, she has that heart of gold thing that you might see in some other characters, but her callousness is mixed in with it in a really interesting way. I don't feel Celeste is callous. I'm not, I disagree with you on that characterization. I don't really know where you got that from. She seems to not care about like stealing from people or like harming other people certain times, but it's not. Oh yeah. I feel like that's just more poverty. Yes. (laughs) Than than being callous. I think that's just like, you need to survive so sometimes you need to make hard choices. I don't... Yeah, but that has to come with a type of callousness, I I think. Uh, I don't think that's the right word. I think your word, your word choice is wrong there. But anyway. Okay. Um, And even Len, who is perhaps sort of the thinnest character that we have here, um, he comes back nine years later having attempted to switch from hair metal to grunge in an attempt to like make some kind of living as a musician... 
but he he's self-aware of that in a way that I guess maybe because I'm a musician, I'm, I try to give him a little bit more credit than him just being a thin doofus musician stereotype. I mean, he I mean, he is. But like you said, there are we do get glimpses into his mind where he know. I mean, we get a a. a a uh, very direct statement from him where he's like, yeah, s- sell out. Like, whatever. He doesn't care. You know, he if just you can wants do it, it's actually it. hard to do, turns out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, what I'm trying to say here is, especially when you're in the point of view of each character, the way the text is written seems to shift to be coming from the way that they view the world personally. Jesse's chapters, where we're sort of in his head, are constantly meandering and full of disgust. Evans are kind of naive, but weighted with years of trauma. Sammy can see her own damage in a lot of ways, but wants to protect her brother from more. All of these things are really well done and subtle, which I appreciate. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just think that all the characters are so vivid. I know you didn't have this written down, but I think the recycler is another great one. Who's sort of a, just a different version of Jesse July, right? You yes. have the recycler is also an egomaniac with no regard for others. And he just wants to use people and manipulate them. And he just wants other people to think he is amazing. Um, even though he's really just a, like a, I don't know, the lowest level cult leader I've ever seen. Like, take, <laughs> yeah. He's, taking he's advan- Yeah. He's taking advantage of people who are drug addicts or who have other, struggles and penning them up in this abandoned motel it's just really uh, yeah it's really something and he he's got some great characterization lines even though we're only really with him for a couple of chapters towards sort of 70 to 75 percent mark of the book um i feel like i definitely know who that man is you know exactly and we only needed that couple of chapters to get that characterization out of him And so that relationship that you pointed out, like he's sort of, I wouldn't call him a mirror image of Jesse July, but he's related to Jesse July's egomania in a way. He's also related to Gideon's naive idealism in a way, although I wouldn't call it fully naive with the recycler, but they both really want the world to be a certain way that they think is the best way. And it's very centered in this like one aspect of one ideal and they're, uh, Gideon isn't successful and he doesn't like have a cult to lead at least until the very end when he has thousands of horrible aliens to teach about the evils of capitalism but I think also there's crossover between Gideon and the recycler which is another interesting part of this book is that you can kind of draw these relationships between lots of characters because they have nuance and depth (laughs) yeah speaking of nuance and depth the story the, the story itself like the plot and is wild and original and it's got this thick syrupy accurate coating of 1990s nostalgia like there's bits of history entertainment culture sprinkled in and it's all meted out in just the right amount at just the right right time like right down to as we've talked about you know the homophobic sears suit wearing power hungry and not as smart as he thinks he is dad jesse july (laughs) like uh, we've even got a discussion of how treasured zines were in the 80s and 90s, which, like, as a metalhead holds a special ring of truth for me. Uh, Chris has a confession to make to all the people at home, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
as much as I want to wave around some early metalhead cred, maybe not early, you know, like 90s metalhead cred or like growing up as a metalhead, I never read Azim in my entire life. That... I've never done that. Like I've bought one copy or two of Codex Obscurum to like support the scene. But most of my interaction with the metal community was online message boards, you know, with people from all around the world hopping on there. And so we would, you know, you would just be in there talking with other people in message board form or chat room form about metal stuff. So I never read any published material like a zine, which is perhaps something I regret. Yeah, I mean, and then they weren't really. I mean, they're all very self <laughs> published <laughs> self xerox extremely um, self published yeah uh but yeah that's really wild to me that you never you never read any i mean i think i had similarly like i had a hard time getting them until i was probably an older teen and had some money from working because you know it didn't exactly have money growing up so it's not like i could you know do that but i mean online message boards were kind of a way that you found out that other people had zines, you know, and you could like connect with them and, and, you know, trade stuff. It's not the ones I was on. (laughs) Yeah. um... Mine was mostly like guitar player online forums though. So perhaps that was the the weird disconnect. That's weird. That is, it wasn't like (laughs) metal communities. (laughs) It was guitar player, like check out my new amp that I bought to play death metal. And like the, you know, the original guitar players from Whitechapel were in there. And I was like, oh, you guys got a really cool band. And that's how I kind of like found yeah, out about them. Yeah, we were on different sides of things. Different I... planets on the 19th. 19- but that's yeah. how like disparate and fractured the internet was, right? So Yeah. Um, yeah, like, well, no, because Whitechapel, I mean, that would have been 2000s. That wouldn't have been the 90s, right? I mean, yeah, that was later on in the in the uh, things like that. I, I will be honest with you, Paris. I, another confession that I suppose I should make for you: like, how did you find out about metal, and what made you start listening to more and more extreme metal? Oh my god, I don't even know. I mean, I I, I know a specific song and thing that made me want to listen to more metal. Oh, I have an embarrassing one that That's I do the remember. Thing. It's not. It's not it's... a great one. <laughs> okay. I'll go first and then hope that it's softened by your example in the hopes that your example is more oh, embarrassing than You're going to laugh your head off at mine. <laughs> oh, mine's bad. Okay. So when I was like maybe 11 or 12 is when I started being like, oh, I think I like, you know, things that are heavier sounding. But I was a kid and I didn't know anything about anything. I don't even know. Yeah, it's really weird because I don't even know how I started. Well, I know that. um, So if you grew up in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, you probably also had some kind of sketchy ass downloading software (laughs) to Uh steal music. My software of choice was SoulSeek. Uh, which which I still have to this day. Um, That's kind of like the hoity-toity, I like my MP3s to be of highest quality one. I was just using Kaza. Oh, no. I remember I tried Kaza one day and was like, this is terrible. Anyway, Soul Seek. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, Uh, illegal stuff on there, let's say. Not just the music. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And I would just look up things that said they were extreme metal and just like, sample things and i would find things i liked and then um 
speaking of like metal forums and stuff, I remember I had made some early friends on various forums and um, there's this one guy that I had talked to a few times on AOL instant messenger and he had an mm. away message one day and it was this, um, this, uh, I thought it was a poem and I was like, that's such a cool poem. What is it? And he was like, it's cradle of filths or ghost in the fog. <laughs> <laughs> so, then uh, I, so then I watched the video and, and I was like, I was like, okay, these guys look a little silly, but I think the music's cool. And then I was like digging for other things that sounded like that. And, you know, eventually founded like emperor, emperor and immortal, even though those things don't really sound like cradle of filth. And um, I got like, I found like some cradle of filth, like a bootleg demo of their stuff at like a local music store. And it was really sick. It's doesn't sound anything like they do now, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, that's really embarrassing for me to be saying on this medium <laughs> that I can never delete. So, <laughs> oh, I'll outdo you. Don't worry, Paris. I'll outdo you. Uh, so yeah. So then, then I was like, oh, I think, I think I like this. And then I started, cause I had already at that point, I think I'd already heard like, I don't know, like Dark Throne and stuff like that. But I that's kind of what got me into more the weird symphonic stuff. So then I was like, oh, and then I found Arcturus and like, you know. I have I... a much more straightforward journey than that for you. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. As a child, um, I was really into uh, the Final Fantasy series. Uh-huh. Still am a little bit. Um, a little and... bit. <laughs> I mean, 15 was, I didn't even play 15. I didn't play 14. I didn't like 13. 16 looks good. It's coming out in a week, and I'm probably going to try that. Says anyway. the man who's only a little bit into Final Fantasy still. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, you know, I liked that, and I had already been listening to some of the heavier, quote-unquote, stuff that you might find on radio. So, like, System of a Down was in oh. there, and Corn was in there, and I felt like a real tough kid when I got the Untouchables album. So, you know, I was, like, already curious about that kind of stuff. And, like, Jonathan Davis's scat singing was so interesting to me because he would add a little bit of a distorted edge to his voice, right? Like, he no. was, like, my first experience with harsh vocals. Okay, I then, feel better now that you're telling your no, story. No, <laughs> that's not it, Paris. No. Then, this is how this connects to Final Fantasy. The Final Fantasy X soundtrack had like a metal song on it with harsh vocals like with but they're not good harsh vocals you can tell it's like grumbly voice where like the there's like a plug-in or something on there that is doing most of the distortion work i am gonna link this to you in the discord chat paris and i really want you to listen to like oh. <laughs> the beginning of this tune this oh. is the song other world from final fantasy 10 uh-huh it is going to, okay. I'm sure, just delight you. <laughs> on, I heard this, Paris. Oh God, it's so loud. <laughs> and, and my and my brain was like, "What is that sound the vocalist is making? I need all of the music that sounds like that. He sounds like a demon. That's so cool." And then I went on an online message board and I said, "Where do I find more stuff like this?" And then someone said, "Listen to Cryptopsy." And oh, after that, nice. after that. It was all over. It was death metal only, pretty much. Now imagine someone making a comparison to the vocals you are hearing right now, Paris, and to Lord Worm. Imagine yeah, making I, that jump I don't know, as like a 12-year-old. That person committed a crime as far as I'm concerned. Or they did a service, right? Because they heard it and they were like, this this little shit needs some Lord Worm right now. Yeah, because this sounds like... Paris, I was so into this song this is like, when it came out. This sounds like 
radio new metal stuff. Like how yes. how anyone was like try cryptopsy. I mean, I'm glad they saved you, but I <laughs> <laughs> because I was I was posting like where do I get more of this kind of vocal? And you weren't really hearing that as often in like your radio new metal stuff. I get. I mean, but that vocal. So- no, you know what that vocal sounds like? Fucking guy from Coal Chamber. That doesn't sound like extreme metal at all. That's so weird. But whatever. You got pointed in the right direction. You were rescued. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> that is my story of how I got into death metal. It's thanks to Final Fantasy X. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I guess we're both embarrassing. I mean, but like, what metalhead isn't an embarrassing? Person? Yeah. Who's like, like the on, coolest man. entrance? And like, yeah. I came out the womb holding an Opeth CD. <laughs> I, I don't, anyway, my uh, my partner has a pretty crazy collection of zines, and like, he's got so much shit I've never heard of, or like stuff that I heard of but could never get, and like only saw pictures of. You know. Uh, so that's been it's been pretty fun. We once in a while play uh, this game where we open, th- oh, we haven't done it in a while, but during the pandemic, we would open a zine and just like open it to a random page. And if there was a band that we had never heard of, we would try to find it on YouTube. And one time we found <laughs> this band that was called like, it was like the album was called The Swan and the band was called The Swan and the song was called The Swan or something. <laughs> they were, listen, and, swans, okay? And it was or, or the most some, metal creature in existence. I, look, man, the Greek black metal scene is fantastic, but they got some weird. This is one of the things that was weird. Um, <laughs> And I think it was The Swan or Black Swan. It was something like that. And we were like, okay, this actually isn't very good, but it's a fun game to play if anyone still has zines, you know, go through them. Maybe don't read the interviews, though, because we started reading the interviews and we realized how horrible that time period was and how some of the questions were pretty misogynistic and terrible and not great. Yeah, uh, the other day, Rebecca and I tried to watch an episode of Seinfeld and we were like, Oh, this sucks. Yeah, <laughs> this Seinfeld's terrible. Now. Seinfeld's terrible. I don't understand how anyone enjoys Seinfeld, at least now. Um, wow, he's just an asshole. Yeah, just a lot of fucked up things. Anyway, we have gone on a really long tangent about yes. metal zines, so we're going to stop talking about that. Um, just the point of how this brought us back into that 90s world really effectively, I think, is the full circle. I mean, so effectively that we just spiraled for 20 minutes on air, so I think I yes. think that uh, proves our point. Uh, anyway, let's read some examples from the text uh, about this special flavor. I can I can go ahead and do some of these. Seattle has always been a bowl of sugar water for people fleeing hick towns with a mayor as a grizzly bear or an alligator in a straw hat. They come to get away from fire and brimstone Christianity, only to find their need to rank and judge other people's purity manifests in new forms, reincarnates, returns, recycles. Just, just got some really good stuff. Just got some really good bits in there the thing about mayors with i mean towns with a mayor who's a grizzly bear or an alligator in a straw hat that's pretty good i I (laughs) enjoyed that very much do you want to do the next one sure after his first day in vietnam where he realized views on communism or capitalism aren't what hold people together he started to wonder what did strictly from an engineering point of view early on during his time in the country he thought it could be shared culture Closing his eyes, he was back at that French-style sidewalk cafe, drinking Coca-Cola, watching a Japanese reporter chat with a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. They looked so different. The skinny Japanese reporter straight as a sapling, and the old hunchback monk gnarled and twisted like a wasteland pine. 
They weren't exactly chatting, since they couldn't speak the same language. They were writing to each other in ancient Chinese. Back then, any educated Asian over 30 could do it. it used to be a core of the curriculum at even the tiniest of village schools. Impressed, Jesse watched the stillness of the reporter and the monk surrounded by every shiny color of spinning bicycle, scratching out all those hieroglyphs used in ancient times to tell fortunes on turtle shells, using them in 1971 to ask questions about napalm and Coca-Cola. Looking from the pair down into his Coca-Cola, Jesse thought there might be more to shared culture than he previously thought. Individuals are just the fizz, and culture is that deep, dark sweetness producing all the fizz meant to pop and die. I thought that was a great encapsulation of how a man who, you know, became an adult in the 70s would be thinking about things in the 90s. Like, what a very hyper-specific thing. Right? It's so (laughs) to the point and sharp and full of color and life there. The comparisons to the monk and the reporter, to the plant life, uh, the soda comparison that he made just by looking down at the soda that he was drinking, right? Like the, those disparate, weird connections that Jesse is making because yep. that's how his brain works. Yep, new fresh neurons in my brain touching. I like oh, the feeling. Oh, it feels so nice. This author has the collar around my neck and he's got the button <laughs> that he's pressing to like send me into neuron meeting ecstasy. And I can't help but keep turning the page. Oh, Chris is booking a flight to Seattle right now. He's going to the caves. <laughs> um, my, I'm sorry, I hate to interrupt this um, discussion of the actual book uh but my partner overheard me struggling to remember the name of that greek black metal album song uh and band name and it was swan christy which is so much better <laughs> than just swan or black that swan. sounds like a bad model like a, a model that's really trying to break into the scene and just can't quite get the yep. feel right swan christy oh greek black metal i do love you thank you tanner thank you for the correction from afar all right um all right, I'll, I'll go ahead and do the next one. This, uh, I should specify, this quote comes from the 1999 section, not the 1990 section. That's important to know. I don't want to know anything about wine. I just want to know where my mom is. What do I look like? Ask Jeeves. If you want to learn about her, you're going to have to come down to the caves and ask Gideon yourself. And maybe fix a few things while you're down there. Got a fucking ask Jeeves reference. That's how you know it is nineteen fucking ninety nine. Because ask Jeeves was more important than Google at the time. Yeah, if y'all remember, like I, I remember being in like ooh the and computer we tied an onion around our belt. <laughs> yeah, I remember being in the computer lab at school with an onion around my belt. Uh, no, with a with a Tamaguchi around my belt and asking uh, Jeeves to find asking, my mother for me. Asking Jeeves to tell me how to keep my Tamaguchi from dying again. Um, <laughs> Which is what the kids use the internet for at the time. Yeah, like a sharp reference that I, you know, maybe there's some Ask Jeeves meme culture in the Zoomers right now or something that I have not touched or heard of. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to pretend to know shit about Zoomers. I'm going to ask some of my younger students. I'm going to make an Ask Jeeves reference in front of them and see, like, if they go, what are you, what? I bet most of them will, but maybe some of the ones that are super into Nirvana might actually get that reference. All right. You want to do our next one? Sure. 
Oh, hey, Celeste said, taking a tape from the shelf and peeling away the shrink wrap. The real world is on tape now. I totally forgot about this. My friends always used to ask why I stayed in Seattle in Seattle, since the music scene is dead and I have nothing to do besides babysit a skits. Uh, sorry, but then we got the real world. <laughs> what a... What a horribly airheaded thought. It's great. Um, yes. And here's the last one for this section. Uh, this one is my personal favorite because it discusses something I hate. <clears throat> this is Sammy going on a rant in 1999. The Gulf War was the last American war ever. Don't you realize the dot-com bubble is about to pop? Dad's egomania was not the norm. We were lucky to have lived with him. End of history, bitch. We're all just going to be consuming lumps. You've got to read this author, Francis, Francis Fuku, Francis Fuku, Sammy gagged, about to vomit. She's talking about Francis Fukushima's The End of History and The Last Man, or The End of History, whatever. It's, if, uh, I, I have a deep disdain for that book, uh, which I will not go into here, uh, but it is a really fucking peak 1990s reference, so it's a great Especially for someone who's a nihilist alcoholic. Right. Right. Yeah. Like everything's going to shit anyway. And who has fully embraced, who hasn't fully embraced like neoliberal American capitalist ideology. (laughs) It's really perfect. Yeah. So all of this, this is why we enjoyed this book so much, despite the insane summaries that we read before. So all of this alien stuff and hollow earth or I guess hollow crust yeah, stuffed hollow crust, crust stuffed crust. Earth. Yes, Chris, alien back, stuffed crust earth. Chris, the back of the book says the back of the book in huge letters says like stuffed crust something. Um, stuffed crust horror, I believe. Yeah, is what it says. yeah, exactly. So yes, but yeah, we the same joke the author is is making here really, but that delicious stuffed crust that might draw you in that might drive you down to the Domino's to get your alien books or whatever. <laughs> I'm really crossing my <laughs> oh, wires here. Jesus, what's happening? Um, that's just a backdrop to the point of the book. Right. Um, and I, I guess maybe Paris, you might disagree on what the point of the book is here, but it definitely has a point that it's trying to make. All this set dressing is threads just woven into the story for exploring each character. Um, we have themes of generational trauma, uh, being absolutely convinced of your particular righteous cause. And ultimately, uh, we see Sammy asking this directly at the end of the book. Why do you care? Like, right? It's the old what drives you, what compels you to do the things that you're doing, even if they're so horrible. Um, is it family bonds like Evan wanting to finally find his mom or Sammy wanting to take care of Evan? Um, is it trying to set the world right? We mentioned Gideon and the recyclers sort of naive idealism or even Jesse who just wants to get away from it all. Like he's like, there's nothing to set right here. I just want to go. Um, or like, just, you know, trying, just trying to leave a horrible situation. Like Jesse wants to leave the earth. Literally Evan wants to leave the caves and his family, they're all woven together in so many ways that make this so interesting to read and to talk about. Um, I mentioned Jesse and Evan being connected before. I mentioned the recyclers connection to Jesse and Gideon before. Sammy and Celeste too. I don't know if they'll they're gonna pass the Bechdel test since I believe yeah, most I of their conversation so. is about Evan. Right. Um, yeah. but they're still interesting characters. 
Um, they're both fantastic to read, and they're dealing with situations while trying to keep a straight face all the time for people that they care about, which might be Len, but actually usually it's just Evan most of the time. So yeah. even that I'm kind of willing to overlook because of how well done the rest of this web is. Well, yeah, because because it's not, um, you know, it, it's focusing on uh, certain people at a certain time, and it's not... I mean, sure, I guess they, you know, the story could have focused on Sammy instead of Evan. Um, you know, maybe they could have swapped them a little bit, but I, I thought it was fine. I, I didn't I didn't really have a problem with it um, being focused on a little boy. It didn't seem like it was um, ignoring, you know, women or, or other people. In fact, no. it, Evan turns out to be asexual by the end of the book and constantly gets confused as being gay by his stupid fucking roommates and their crust-punk friends named Mayhem, and I forget the cat's name. What was the cat? <laughs> a stupid name, too. Um... And uh, there is so much pointed jabs at toxic masculinity in this book that, like, it didn't need to... For me, that was already kind of covered. Like, it's pretty clear that the book isn't, you know, the book isn't like, oh, we're just going to talk about men here. Like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think The Bechdel test isn't the be-all, end-all test for, like, is this a feminist book or, like, you know, is this not a misogynist book? I just kind of want to throw that in there to say, like, hey, even if they don't pass this sort of, like, famous bar that some people use that we've used in the past on certain episodes, it's still really well done for all of the characters regardless of their position within the society that we're reading about. Yeah, and like you said, the really important point here is that all this weird stuff is just the backdrop, right? It's really just about human connection, you know, the the horrors of, of childhood trauma and familial dysfunction. Uh, and I, I just also think that it ends in a way that is unsatisfying, but just the right amount of unsatisfying. Like Evan finds his mother, but she's, in a coma and she's been in a coma since before he was born which yes means exactly what you think it means about jesse's eugenics program you find mm. out that jesse talked uh evan's mother into because evan's mother uh evan's mother mother evan's grandmother <laughs> is the caretaker of his mom who's in a coma and jesse talked her into it because they had mounting medical bills you know keeping a woman in a coma alive at home uh and their house was like under was like under a broken drawbridge or something yeah it was like close to, to or under a broken drawbridge which is a really funny quote that we might as well read here yeah um it says the old woman told evan the west seattle drawbridge was still broken back then and they didn't know if the house would be worth anything there were medical bills, and she didn't know if she could sell the house for much because the drawbridge was stuck in the up position. So how incredibly dark and fucked up to, like, and, like, absurd, right? Like, that sort of absurd dark humor there where, like, oh, we have mounting medical bills to take care of a loved one here that we can't pay because our house is underneath failing infrastructure, so it's not worth anything. Yeah, so I guess I'm going to let this guy, uh, you know, rape and impregnate my comatose daughter <clears throat> and make her give birth while comatose. Like, that's, oh, that's horrible. What a horrible thing. But, it, I mean, it's a horrible idea, but it's introduced in such a sort of kind of tacit 
under the surface way that you're like, well, that is horrible, but it's not treat. It's not like um, gawked at or idled on in a weird, creepy voyeuristic way. That's the other thing this book succeeds at is it brings up some horrible shit. Like there is a child suicide in this book early on, but it's not, um, you know, it's, it's talked about in a way that's, sad and quick and you're just like well that was horrible but there's still gravity to it but it's not lingered upon and and i think that so many books we've read they've failed at handling darker deep topics like this because they have kind of they kind of spend too much you know camera time for lack of a better word uh, (laughs) they really grab your head and turn you towards it and shove your face in it right whereas this one is trying to show you the longer term ramifications of experiencing something like that despite the fact that in the moment the characters are often trying to brush it off and move on and like that's how you develop that scarring right yeah like you're just like i just gotta move on from this and it settles deep inside and affects you way later in ways you might not have predicted yeah, exactly. Yeah, in any case, um, yeah, there's like this crazy, this all the alien stuff, but it's not, it's not the central point of this work. No, not <laughs> so, at all. So don't be, don't be scared away by the alien stuff because honestly, it's just kind of, it's just there to help all the human stuff happen. Humans yeah. So when focus. Max emailed us and said it's about monsters underground mind controlling people that is barely talked about in here well no there's no there's no monsters mind controlling anyone i think that was just a misunderstanding of what maybe what the press copy it it was was like the 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 visions that some people at the service could sometimes get and like render them like completely insane from having seen it once they weren't really like mind controlling them but i guess the point i'm trying to make is i think max maybe put that in there as a way to draw us in Mm. Maybe. Like as a way to be like, okay, well, this book seems crazy, so you should probably read it. I don't. It's unclear whether Max read this themselves. I don't think he did because if he did, I don't. I I don't think he did because if he did, I don't think he would have written that email. Um, or I don't think he would. It have does said seem wildly this. terrible on the surface, though, it does. right? Yeah, I mean it, that's how it ended up on the show, right? It does seem like it's going to be awful. So I don't, I mean, I don't blame Max for writing in about it. I just think that if he had read it, uh, the email he wrote would have had to, would have been different, right? Like, is that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Um, I guess the marketing for this book is maybe the terrible thing about it. I, I think the, the posting the poem up is fine, but the, yeah, the bakery video was weird and it seems like. Maybe the way the author is describing the book to people is doing him a disservice. I I think I'm not really sure. Yeah, I mean, there's also an element of people gawking at the weirdness of it online, Mm -hmm. especially on the Reddit post. We're like, this is so weird. Why would anyone do this? Like, this this must be, like, crazy and out there. And sure, the the bakery ad didn't really help things (laughs) at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's not great. I mean, to be fair... The bakery itself looks like a good bakery. It's called True. Like, Moon. Was it Moon? Moon. Damn it. God damn it. Some Moon Village. Moon Village Bakery. Is that right? Yeah. Moon Village Bakery. I guess there's your alien theme there. Yeah. Moon Village. So uh, what I'm saying is that that there was an element of people being like, how could this is so out of the ordinary? I don't. Can we make sense of it? And that's sort of goes along with 
how the book feels in some ways where there's these out of ordinary things happening in sort of plain sight. Um, so I, the, again, the poem posting thing was fine. And for some people to assume, oh, this must be like the work of some local weirdo and it must be bad, I think is not digging deep enough, right? It's a little bit sort of prejudging things before you actually look at the content of it, which I don't know how I feel about. Well, I mean, that's what we do with this whole point of the show, Chris. So I don't know. Sure, but we actually go in there and then we read it and then we form <laughs> that's the true, opinion. That's true. Right? That's true. That's we the do. major difference that I'm getting at here is it seems like people online were like, wow, what a weirdo, stupid thing. Yeah. And then they, they didn't actually get to know it a little bit and like investigate it a little bit. But, but fine. Who has the time to really deeply investigate telephone poll poems that they find around town? But I guess if you're posting online, you you have the time. So <laughs> well, dig a little bit deeper. Uh, well, to, I mean, to to maybe push back a little bit on that i i felt like i read a chapter of this book and i was like this is this is really well written you know and of course the first chapter doesn't always indicate what is to come but the writing seemed really well done and i was like this doesn't seem like it's going to be terrible unless this takes a wild turn i don't think it's going to be terrible so i think if people had even just kind of randomly opened it to a couple of pages or read the first chapter it's pretty obvious that this isn't horrible so I, yeah and at least not objectively abjectly horrible you know like a lot of things we've read i guess despite what we do here on the podcast and we kind of do point at weird stuff and be like look at how weird and out of the ordinary this is but i don't love it when people do that before actually taking a look at the content of something. Well, so yeah, an example course, is yeah. like a personal pet peeve of mine is let's say, you know, you have a certain style of clothing that you wear and you know, you're maybe you're sort of identifiable by that style of clothing or like you've, let's say you've never worn a hat before. And then <laughs> okay. one day you go to work and you wear a hat one time and everyone's like, Oh, hat guy is just wearing hats. Now hat guy with your hats. I, I just really hate when people try to, like, box you in by, like, making you feel strange for doing one little out of your ordinary thing. It's like, that's not what you do normally. Do the normal thing you do all the time. You shouldn't change. Yeah. I really hate that shit. I mean, I also hate that because it's happened to me a lot. I, you know, I wear a lot of black in my life. And the amount of times people have thought it was appropriate to talk to me about how oh my god, you wear black all the time. Why do you do that? That's so weird. It's like, it's A, it's not weird. A lot of people wear a lot of black. Black is a very, it's a color that goes with everything else. It is easy to just get dressed most of the time. <laughs> like, I feel comfortable in it. Like, I, in the second I wear any anything of color, it's the fucking talk of the town. And I'm like, <laughs> why does right, anyone yeah. give a fuck? I am... I am a worm in this world. I am not a Why person of any Why are you so part? concerned with like, like this one aspect so of weird. your peripheral? Like, I'm not even important in your life, Debbie. Like, yeah. why is it also a huge deal that I wore a color or a hat or so, like something out of the ordinary? And I just don't like that. And I think it dr makes people not want to branch out from where they are often. And people should stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, what I'm let saying. people fucking wear like unless what they're wearing is somehow hurting them or others. Like I, I don't see why you need to comment on it. And also, not only comment on it, but make a connection between what the person is wearing and what like their state of mind or their state of being is. 
There yeah. was a lot. There's a lot of this really ignorant, like, oh, you were all black all the time, therefore you must have something wrong with you, or you must be mean or cruel, or you must like blood and Anne Rice. You know, <laughs> like I was talking about terrible '90s stereotypes, like. I can't believe that people still think like that, but some people do, and it's really odd. I I don't know. Um, but yeah, and anyway, this is just a, a long-winded way of me saying I agree with you. I don't think that's a great way to go about the world. Um, and yeah, I also I don't think that's a good way to approach books like you said sure we might hate things but that's because we've experienced them we have the right yeah, we to went hate through them. like listen we didn't judge <laughs> the surface level we went dive, dive deep into that crust that hollow terrible crust uh yeah so i don't know uh we are almost done with the things that were good section this might be the longest things that were good section we've ever had uh, let's we can talk a little bit about how there was just some great sneaky humor in here this book has a lot of witty lines that are like we said uh, when we were talking about the writing was are like understated and great because they are you know you can't I never in the back of my mind I'm never hearing the author like chuckling to himself about how fucking smart and funny he is like no this sounds this sounds genuine like all of the little witty bits in this seem very genuine which make them all the better. We already talked about like the Ask Jeeves reference and I mentioned sort of the the dark humor in the the whole comatose mom situation too like i wasn't like gut busting at that it's just such an absurd little microcosm of horrible that it's like it's you have to kind of laugh at it a little bit for because like it's almost relatable yeah um a lot of the recycler stuff is pretty funny too mm -hmm. um like this gideon and the recycler especially are, are, i suppose the comic relief in here there is a moment at the very beginning of the book where Gideon is sitting in his attic room in the house that he lives in, trying to quickly glue together his zines for distribution the next morning. And Evan manages to communicate to him through the television screen, like actually like project his face as a hologram out into Gideon's room. And Gideon, of course, is extremely scared by this. Um, and the line at the end of the chapter is Gideon couldn't figure out if what he'd seen was right wing or left wing. Which again is really good characterization of how Gideon thinks in binaries exclusively and in just like a really funny way to break down like how Gideon views the world and how he's trying to categorize everything into this one or the other sort of thing. And if he can't do that, it, renders him even more scared well and i i also just like how there are so many either subtle or overt references to how the 80s and 90s were uh, people in the 80s and 90s in america at least were obsessed with constantly comparing capitalism and communism like there were those were the only two things yes. even to someone like gideon who is a, a greasy kind of failure of a of a metalhead and then jesse who is this you know uh, real estate mogul, wealthy guy from Texas, Vietnam vet. Like, no matter who you are, everyone seemed to be obsessed with this forced binary between two things that <laughs> didn't necessarily, yes. you know, didn't always make sense to be doing that. And the author uh, illustrates that point really well. Um, I, I do have a spot towards the end that I can read uh, about the recycler and Gideon. Um, sure. This is this is right where they uncover like the alien camera thing. 
footage of the caves beneath Seattle, not as they looked now, but as they have looked in their, but as they would have looked in their prime. The lead gloves free of tumors, the quartz statues free of cracks. The camera panned through the hallways, going down the ramp into what was now Jesse's office. It paused on the huge gold vault door. The golden basement, the recycler said coldly, glaring at the throne. He'd seen the gold vault door before, but only in glimpses after experiencing levels of pain like internal paper cuts. Now it was there for everybody to see. Ancient secrets and all the clarity of a big screen television. Equally as visible to him as it was to the boy. Equally as visible to two impure ones who had no business seeing it before years of proving themselves to him. So many nights in this room with followers who saw flashes of the gold door the right way, prepared after years in recovery, maiming themselves, showing they could be pure. They all cried after getting a vision, cried from the pain caused by the chair, cried because they were finally worthy to go on the mission to search for the gold door. Now the six-year-old could press a button and see the same thing? Do you have a piece of cloth for me to wipe my glasses with? Gideon called through the thin motel wall. My shirt is too sweaty and this address is really blurry. I don't know if I'll be able to translate it. Not a good time, the recycler yelled back, throwing his shoe at the wall. Here, I'll show you what I mean, Gideon responded. I'm coming in. No, the recycler shouted back. The recycler gasped at how whiny his no sounded. He could already feel his authority draining out of him. Soon, he'd no longer even have power over the Century 21 motel. Look, Evan said, pointing at the glowing image coming from the throne. It showed the grid of gold squares next to the vault door. Jesse July had bred dozens of children, hoping at least one would know how to slide those squares. Now they were sliding into the right order. Don't tell me to look, the recycler snapped. This is my throne. I'm the one who the Queen of Love appointed to save the Earth. Me. I tell people to look. I tell people when to go to bed. I told people how to be good. I need something to draw on, Evan said. He wanted to write down the vault combination while it was still fresh in his mind. All the recycler heard was that Evan didn't listen to anything he said. Gideon entered. These glasses are just too greasy today. Taking them off, Gideon rubbed them on his sweaty t-shirt. And Russian is hard to read to begin with. See how blurry this address is? Gideon held out his spiral-bound notebook full of scraps. It's not even real Russian, the recycler shouted. I need that, Evan snatched Gideon's notebook. Taking the pen out of the spiral spine, he wrote down the order to slide the tile, sketching the grid. In the glowing backrest, the vault door opened. Going down deeper, an alien prison. Specimens locked up for eternity in ice and goo. Thousands of creatures preserved mid-thought, thinking things which mattered in distant galaxies at distant times but would never matter again. The camera snaked through the rows until it came to a neon yellow tube. Sealed inside was a creature clearly the same species as the mummy in the satellite. It looked like the mummy would have had before it decomposed. Furry, frozen, soft, vicious. The camera quit moving. There was nothing else in the universe it wanted to show. It didn't care about any of the other captives down in the lead glove dungeon. It only cared about freeing whatever this was. A friend? Boss? Lover? Family? Whatever the relationship, rescuing this had mattered more to the mummy than its own life. The screen went black. What about me? The recycler begged the empty throne. What about good and evil? What about my purpose? <laughs> so, anyway, I just thought it was great. It's a great scene because it, there's just so much going on there, right? Like, you have, like, the pointless of humanity in the vast expanse of space. And then, you know, 
hubris and megalomania and, and then Gideon like, just being a dork in the in the, off to the side an idiot being like I can't read this fake Russian I made up just using the Cyrillic language it's yeah it's a great little scene like he's trying to translate by the way this this context might be lost it's like he's trying to translate his own language that he wrote down on a post-it note at one time <laughs> It's not even his own language. He just used Cyrillic characters instead of instead of the Roman alphabet to write down <laughs> English. And so like because he wanted to it's be so more stupid. And and like and, <laughs> and like the way the recycler is turning into like this whiny lump, just like finally like maybe seeing his purpose unfolded before him while also dealing with Gideon off to the side there. And when he pops in to go I tell where everyone went to go to bed. Yeah. Like, it's just such a... So funny. Right? Like, it's, it's, it's silliness, but also seriousness at the same time, because Evan is also finally seeing the thing that his father has been working towards and what's down there. And to see that behind that basement door isn't anything that you really wanted anyway, it doesn't even matter to you at all because it's some horrible alien creature that has been here forever and you have no context for what you can do with it, which again mirrors exactly kind of what happens at the end with Evan and his mom, which is like he thought he was going to get something and it would be closure for him. Jesse thought he was going to get something that was closure for him, but it just tears you apart. Yeah, there's no closure. Uh, you're just going to go to therapy. You can't You can't open <laughs> weird Turns doors out. in the earth. You can't go see your comatose mom. You're just going to fucking go to therapy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do really love that Jesse July... Instead of going to therapy, men will enslave their whole family <laughs> and j- thousands of species of aliens to fly away. <laughs> men will sooner breed children in their own private eugenics experiment before going to therapy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and I do. I just love that Jesse's idea that oh, there must be a spaceship down there. I I don't even know where he got that idea from. Honestly, it doesn't even make sense. I don't know why he just had romanticized this idea into being, and the fact that it's actually just an alien prison, and then uh, turns out he gets murdered the moment the door opens because. Uh, or the moment the moment they figure out how to wake up the aliens in the prison, I forget yes. that there's some point yeah. at which someone realizes that, you know, they can uh, take all the aliens out of stasis and they immediately murder Jesse because he's the first one in the door and because he has been living with the lead gloves who were the jailers to all the Indians and in the, the aliens in the prison. So the fact that Jesse smells like they're jailers means that they think they just assume he must be either one of them or in cahoots with them. So they just eat him immediately. <laughs> so yeah. I guess he does get off this planet. Finally, that is, that right. is what was behind the golden door. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Um, I guess that's it. And we're going to talk about a few things we didn't like or that were bad for us. Um, for the most part though, no notes, almost, almost no notes. Yeah, almost, almost no notes. Very few. Um, I we didn't like the illustrations. I, I mean, and that they were drawn by someone else, so it you know. But I guess the author chose to include them and wanted illustrations for this. I really just think it would have been better without illustrations. I don't like the style. This could just be a taste thing, but it's it's this very kind of 
melty comic book style that doesn't yeah doesn't and there's really no straight lines to be found i would say generally yeah i don't know almost it, none it's just a book that didn't need illustrations like it did such a good job of um allowing me to picture these people and characters and scenes in my mind i don't really i don't i just don't think the illustrations added anything I agree. You know? I, it might be a stylistic thing, too, because the illustrations, I think, are purposefully gross looking. Right. Yeah. And they do disgust me a little bit. And perhaps that is the point of their inclusion. But I agree that I got enough from the text alone that I don't think the illustrations really added much of anything. I'm not going to say it was bad. It's just done in a style that I don't like to look at. Well, that and like I said, I, I just... I didn't see the purpose of having them. They didn't yes. add anything for me. So mm, cut the illustrations next time. Um, the, so like we've talked at length about how this book does an excellent job steeping the reader in the 1990s, whether through historical bits, sociocultural musings, just random media inclusions, or even food. Like it, it really, when we talk about immersion, this might be the best yeah, the best like <laughs> immersion we've ever seen in a book. Um but I do wonder if the R word needed to appear at all. It was in there maybe like three or four times and I was like, look, I know people said this in the nineties. I remember it being a thing, but like you you already we're already in the nineties sticky Coca-Cola. You know, do we really need that? I just don't think that it um it didn't do anything else the author hadn't already done in getting us really deep in the 90s nostalgia. And it sucks. Like, I don't, I just, it's not, <laughs> it's not a great thing. We shouldn't be saying it. I don't know. I don't uh, think, I don't I, think we I, needed it. I'm half and half on this, to be honest with you, because it. I think it does add a little bit of that immersion because people did use that word a lot more often back then. And especially the only characters you really see using it are somewhat more of the callous characters in some ways. Like I see Sammy uses it a bunch of times because she, you know, doesn't really care about anyone except her brother. It's Sammy, so, Jesse, and I forget who else says it. Maybe the, Celeste says it. Maybe the recycler. Yeah, something like that. So it's done by characters who are probably overall less empathetic to the plight of their fellow human beings. So I feel like it's kind of good characterization and it would apply to those people in that time period. It would. And it's not all over the book. Yeah, I know. I just like, uh, well, I, I guess my issue is like, I don't get what it adds that the book hasn't already given us, you know? It didn't. It didn't feel like it was needed to flesh out the evils or troubles of certain characters when we were already well aware. We had already typified them in our minds. So I don't yeah, know. That's why I'm real fifty-fifty on this man. Like it's hard for me to say don't do it, but it's also hard for me to say like it needs to be there. So I kind of really can't give a definitive answer one way or the other on how I feel about that. Okay. Yeah. I. I mean, I know that reading it made me feel bad. <laughs> I was like, I mean, but the, I mean, a lot of things in this book made me feel bad. But I was just like, did you know, did we really need that? Did we need, did we need that? I don't think we needed it. It didn't feel like it. 
again, it didn't feel like it added anything to the text that I didn't already know based on the rest of the excellent characterization provided. I think having that addition isn't a bad thing, even if you got it from other places. Yeah. Anyway. Again, that's why I'm real 50-50 on it. Yeah, so I think that was it. Like, I don't think we had... There's one point that I think we have... I, I understand where you're coming from in this point here, but... Those lead gloves are kind of out and about all around Seattle, and they're costumed. They're they're like wrapped in astronaut suits and like mascot suits, so it's not like you can see their horrible alien forms. But they're described as being like way taller than most people. Yeah, they're very. Long. And there's a there's like a good bunch of them out and about in Seattle looking for Evan, or sometimes even doing tasks for Jesse. So I guess I bring this up more as a point like this is the one thing in all the plot and setting and dressing that's happening here where I was like, mm, what that, is that like believable that people would be like, what's up with all the huge people in like body covering suits wandering around like the police didn't really question them or anything ever. Um, despite all the fact that there was like a bunch of murders going around and like there was like an urban legend of like people being kidnapped by ogres and stuff yeah so that was kind of the one aspect of the plot where i was like i know this does stretch my believability a little bit but the point i'm actually trying to get to here is that because the rest of it is so well done and it's not really the point of the story about all these horrible alien creatures being around it's just a mechanic to talk about the other things that we liked about in the story i'm willing to let that slide so this is my official sort of like raising my hand here to say like listen it's not like we can't enjoy things that stretch believability we're willing to let i am willing at least to let things go if the rest of it is well done enough that i can let one or two things sag well i i don't know i don't I don't know that it really stretches believability that much either, because as we already mentioned, they're in full mascot costumes. So it's like seeing a bunch of gritties walking around. I mean, it's weird, but you're like, I don't know, maybe they're going to an event or like it's their job. I got the feeling that there was hundreds all around the city. I don't. That is not the impression that I got. I think they Perhaps would. That's the difference. I think they would come up at various times to do things for Jesse, but it's not like there were two hundred of them roaming all over the city simultaneously. I thought that during the Goodwill Games aspect, that that was what was happening because they were looking for Evan. And previously, yes, you know, they'd be out point. and about at night, at night, and like you know, under cover of darkness, in their full suits and everything. And perhaps you could get away with a lot in that way. But yeah, I, and it seemed like the uh, the book mentions that the only people who were reporting them were people who were eh, hippies, drug users, you know, people that I guess sure. most of Seattle society would probably consider undesirable, and therefore they wouldn't really give a lot of credence to their claims. Plus, like. Pretty sure Seattle police in the 90s had, like, other things to worry about than people being like, there's a big man in a costume that's whatever. <laughs> like, I don't I don't know if that was, like, the top of okay, their Okay, Nancy, list. there's um, a bunch of sports events happening. You just saw a mascot. Relax. Yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from, too. I think I'm trying to be fair somewhat here and try to find, like, one thing that I was like, this is kind of not the best I mean, part but i'm is... really reaching i'm really reaching and i understand that yeah i i think that it was explained in a way that made it work in the world the author had created it didn't seem that you know if we're already going to accept that there's a bunch of caves and this guy sure. holds yeah. a remote control for these these beings um 
you know, but, but I guess this is a good time to talk about the fact that that did all work despite being absolutely ridiculous because you can understand how a remote control and a collar work together, right? Because that's like a thing that in reality yes. exists. And yes. like, y- you could understand how, you know, a remote control collar situation could produce some, you know, kind of feeling because that's a real thing that you could do, right? Or, and sure, it is wild to think about these alien creatures in caves, but if they were you know, sent there with a directive to mind this jail, then yeah, of course they're going to stay under there and they're only going to go anywhere if someone else is controlling them with the collar, right? Like, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, even though it is absurd, the underpinnings of the absurd premise, like all the independent parts can still work in reality, right? Like there's all these parts that are connected together to build something absurd, but all of it is still kind of functional in the world that we live in. All these things make Agreed. sense. Um, so, Paris. Yes. Can we fix it? I don't think there's really anything no, to fix. <laughs> because there's nothing to fix. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing to fix. I'm going to keep my grubby hands off this and go back down into the, the terrible caves that are under the Earth's surface, I suppose. Because I... It's it's good. It's great, honestly. Okay, let's Paris. We've read a lot. Of, we've read 174 other books on yep. this podcast, mm-hmm. and there's been books that we've enjoyed in that 174. Mm-hmm. I think I can unequivocally say this is my favorite book that we've read that I would mm-hmm. recommend to other people pretty wholeheartedly. Oh wow, this is your favorite one. Hmm. I think I would say that. Yeah. Um. I don't think it was my favorite of the ones we've read on the show, although I'm struggling to remember what my favorite was. I think my favorite might be um, either Bear or one of the ones that um, Will recommended. Uh, True. The one that by the Mountain Goats guy. I think that one. Universal Harvester. Yeah, Universal Harvester. Bear. Um, I really like that Haunted House one that Will recommended too. Yeah, man, fuck this house. Man, fuck this house. Um, there have been a few that that we did like. Swamplandia, I think we enjoyed. Oh, Swamplandia was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if this is my favorite because I don't. I'm not really into like kid adventures or the 1990s because I didn't have a great time in the 90s so like for me there's no fun sticky nostalgia it's like oh that that decade sucked (laughs) so like I guess I guess but that's that's no um that's no fault of the book that's just my personal taste stuff but it's definitely definitely one of the best books we've read for the show um and I would absolutely like this book was not terrible Maybe I wouldn't pick it up based on the cover or the back of the book summary, but it's still a great book. And I can, you know, I have the ability to read something and say, maybe this flavor isn't for me, but I get how other people could like it. And its constituent parts are done so well that I can sit here and say it was a great book. Uh, But I think if you are into dark, understated humor and like a sharp dissection of 1990s American politics and culture, then this book is for you. Um, I'd recommend this to people actually who maybe like the idea of bizarro fiction, but want something more palatable because this isn't heavy on like graphic sex or violence, despite all the dark stuff in it. It doesn't, like we said, it doesn't like 
linger on things voyeuristically, which is a point in its favor. I and I gotta say, I'm shocked this was self published and not put out by a I real am publishing dumbfounded. house. It Stupefied. Is, yeah, because like it is both the content is great and the construction was great. Like the editing was wonderful, you know, the cover, all of it works. I can't believe this wasn't published by an actual publishing house. Like it should be. It, this is, Wasn't the author's other book about Bigfoot published by a publishing house? Yeah, by a smaller publisher, I think, in Seattle or Washington or something. Uh, so I'm not sure why they didn't pick this one up. Maybe maybe he just wanted to get it out faster. I don't know, but I really hope that this actually gets published because this is a good book. Like, I, I don't know. Um, sorry, Max. I hope that uh, I hope that you still listen and still want to, you know, be our be our. Uh, this wasn't exactly like a yucca minute episode no. that perhaps you were hoping for with like, how strange the coding, the outer layer is on this, especially with, you know, the comments about the 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 video ad and the the author's bio in the back of the book. By the way, did you read the author's bio in the back I, of the book? I did. I did. And he seems to understand that he did shit on that Ellen DeGeneres show. So, like, yeah, I mean, I think you know the author just comes across as maybe a little socially awkward and not great with technology. That that's about it. I mean, he doesn't seem like a bad person or like an asshole yeah. or anything like he seems that. Under, he seems self aware yeah. of, of of that of all that. Thing. Yeah. So and uh, yeah, while certainly the bakery thing does make you go like, what is? What are you trying to do here? That was strange. And that is by far, it's probably the most off-putting part about trying to get into this book. Um, Like, why would you? I mean, but I get why you would market donuts and books. People who like donuts also like books. And maybe you want to sit with your donut and read the book and get all the donut (laughs) frosting all over the book. I mean, as a secondary point to things that were off-putting, I actually think the back of the book summary does this book a disservice. Like, that back of the book summary does not... It makes it seem like it's just about this, like, kid's adventure. It doesn't make it seem like it's about the dark heart of humanity, which is actually what this book <laughs> is about. And, like, America and, like, the horrible aspects of, like, American culture. So I do think that if the author does anything, I hope that if this is published by a publishing house, I really hope they rework that um that summary because I, I don't think it tells you what the book is actually about. Fair. So we don't have a problem with the book. It's sort of the marketing wrapped around. Yeah, it. yeah, that outer crust. We are we are missing the hollow. We're missing the delicious around. cheesy inside because yeah. the crust looks overbaked and and bad. <laughs> Food metaphors. That's how we always end. It's the here only thing we can do at Terrible Book Club. We have no other skill. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's really it. Uh, all right. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Max. I know that our opinions may differ on this, but we we actually hope you give the book a chance. I mean, and yeah. Or, and continue to still uh, give us a chance as your uh, podcast of choice to keep you from banging your head into the wall. Uh, we really BBC appreciate. has betrayed you, and now you're going to smash your head. Into the wall. Don't do that, please. please. Yeah, we we did not intend to betray you. Uh, we just yeah we we read the book and gave our gave our honest critique of it. So in any case, thank you for recommending this because we were glad to have read it, and it was nice to read a book that yes. wasn't wildly terrible. Um, in the- real wild swings here this year on oh, TBC. Yeah, really. <laughs> like the weather the climate out there getting just a little bit swingier oh the death throes um all right well yeah thank thanks max uh we hope we hope you're good uh as a fellow uh, member of the dunks uh we hope you have not been <laughs> killed by the mbta yet <laughs> or horrible aliens coming out from underneath the mbta tunnels 
Help. That maybe that's the problem down there. Oh my God, you're right. The MBTA problems are let are because of the lead gloves. It's very clear now. This makes so much more sense. They're the ones that keep fucking up the tracks. Oh my God, this is why they, it takes them so long to repair things because they're trying to work. Was, that's why there was a whole scandal about them signing off on work that didn't actually happen because they were just handing them forms and the leg gloves can't read, so they're yeah. just like doing what they're instructed and signing off on oh it. Oh my God, the Chris, the big dig. my My mind is blown we've figured it out this is why boston infrastructure is so terrible because we also have underground caves with an alien prison and then the alien jailers are trying to keep the alien prison in check and then they're fucking up all the all the shit oh man so the alien prison was put in during the big dig that's why the big dig was so big it took 35 years really what it was that's really what it was. This all makes so much sense. Thanks, Max. You've really, really uh, sorted things out for us. All right. Well, while we're thinking, Max, let's also thank our wonderful patrons. Thank you, Greg, Veronica, Will, D, Jared, Arant, Senior, Jakub, Lycoris, Elliot, Kieran, Martin, Jay, Luchek, Miri, Yanka, David, Julius, Anya, Patricia, Austin, Donnie, Beast with the Least, Scott H, Robin, Lexstodes of the Void, the Taco Eating Unicorn, Last Man on Earth 01, Funny Robot with Antennas, Hobby Boy 93, Harry, Mason, Renee, Emmy, The Ugly One, Bleached Black Cat, Julius the Nice Dragon, Eastern Swiss, Rudy Bo Booty, and our newest patron, Ben Durgan Guitar. Thank you for joining us over here on TVC, Ben Durgan Guitar. We actually kind of sort of know Ben. I, I, mean, I know yes. I'm sort of I was gonna say I yes I Hi, definitely ben. know Ben <laughs> I've interacted with him like once or twice in person I think yeah and of course our Kofi donor Kiwi thing thanks everyone for supporting the show Hooray. sending us nice book recommendations and emails yeah we're we, glad we love that them. we can help you not smash your head against the wall yeah um I gotta say we we've gotten quite a few emails this year uh, from folks so keep them coming it's great to hear from people and it's nice to get recommendations with you know, a detailed explanation instead of people in YouTube comments just saying, hey, have you heard of this? And we're like, I don't, I don't know. That doesn't sound, I don't know. It's <laughs> better. It's just better. Long, long form. No, we're not reading Empress Teresa. Please stop. Yeah, we're not doing it. Um, maybe maybe someday, but not not this day, not this year. All right. Well, um, well, Chris, I guess, um, I guess I'm going to go. Uh... got to go back to the hollow crust, terrible <laughs> minds with all the terrible malformed sentences. Now I'm just thinking about veggie crust and how much I want their paneer pizza and falafel pizza, and it's, like, killing me inside. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, let's go get that. All right. Let's go. All right. Back down to the mines we go. Back down to the mines. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Terrible Book Club. Terrible Book Club is an independent podcast produced by your hosts, Paris and Chris. Sound design and audio editing by Chris, with sound effects and music by Epidemic Sound and sometimes also Chris. Our theme song is Kiss by Yearn, which is, you guessed it, actually, also Chris. You can find more of his soothing synthy sounds on Bandcamp at yearn.bandcamp.com. Do you want us to review a book of your choice on the show? Do you want access to some extra audiovisual weirdness? If so, become a patron at patreon.com slash terriblebookclub. If you'd like to send us a one-time tip instead, you can do that at ko-fi.com slash terriblebookclub. 
You can also support TBC for free by sharing the show on social media, following our accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Goodreads, telling your friends about your favorite episode, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else on the internet. To send us book recommendations or your adorable pet photos, send an email to terriblebookclub at gmail.com. 